Hello and welcome to day 42 of OT with DA. Welcome to YouTube and welcome to those of you that are signing on to Instagram. Great to see you all. Welcome. I hope you've I hope you've had a wonderful day today. I apologize I'm a couple minutes late. This is becoming habitual now, isn't it? But I actually have a very good excuse. Oh, somebody says howdy from Chattanooga. Hello, Jen. Hello, Allison. Hello, Grace Faith. Hope Love 3. What are those little, what is that? Oh, hi. Okay, gotcha. Um, hello, Stefan. Good evening from Houston. Hey, Frog Trap. I followed you today on Instagram. Looks like you have a funny account. I'm excited about it. Hey, Jim. Hello, Gabby Abby. Hello, Cassandra. Arlene from Toronto. And there we go, Pilot's mom, Linda, from Northwest Ohio, Susanna, Diana. All right, hello, everyone. MSNY931 says, hi, DA, I hope you had a great Sabbath. In fact, I did have a great Sabbath. And uh, I'll tell you something interesting. I was a little bit late, just a couple minutes. And the reason was, um, Mark Finley was preaching at the local church today. Actually, I wasn't able to go to where he was preaching because I was doing a baby dedication at a neighboring church. Anyway, he's in the area, and uh, he's actually staying in the house that I'm doing this recording in, and I was just showing he and Teeny, my little, that's his wife, my little mini studio here, and so he wanted to know about it, and I showed it to him, and you can't, you, can't, you know, when it's time to go live, you can't just say, hey, Mark, you got to go. I got to, you're right, he's like the elder statesman of Adventist preachers, um, at least living Adventist preachers. And so I was a few minutes late because I was spending time with Mark Finley. And that, that's a good excuse. That's, that's a, I get a pass for that one. Welcome, everybody. Hope you had an awesome day. I had a, a great day today. Spent time with my wife, spent time with really great people, ate some good Puerto Rican food. Um, we dedicated a little baby named Rosie. Um, I even got to take a short nap. I mean, I've had a great day. It's been a giant. I've read our chapter three times, right? Jim says, bring him on. Yeah, he's downstairs. I, I don't I don't know if he'd want to just stick his head in here. But um, good suggestion. By the way, I don't know if I've mentioned this. I think I have briefly one time. We I'm going to have some uh, guests, unexpected, unplanned guests that will be arriving either tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. So get ready for that. And these are guests that have never been on the show before, right? There's going to be, uh, anyway, I'm not going to say any more. Just prepare yourself. People are saying Puerto Rican food is awesome. You are not wrong about that. Uh, beans and rice today. And then some amarillos, which I think some people call maduros, which is like the sweet plantains. That's my favorite. And then we also had tostones, which is the green plantains that are squished and um, yeah, delicious. My wife makes really good Puerto Rican food too, by the way. Even though she's Romanian, she's learned how to make really, really good sort of Caribbean beans and rice. And she makes tostones really well. She makes the maduros really well. My wife's basically amazing. I know you know that. And if you're playing bingo, I've already said, hello, Gabby Abby, and my wife is amazing. So it, you can just mark those off right now. All right, let's start with prayer, and then we are into this um, apostasy at the Jordan, chapter 41, day 42. As I mentioned earlier, I was able to read this chapter three times today, 
And it's kind of a hard chapter to read, isn't it? It's not a lot of good news in this chapter. Actually, there's one really, really, at least one really, really piece of good news. Good piece of good news? There's one piece of good news. Probably more, but one that really jumped out at me. And I'm excited to share that with you. So let's start with prayer, and then we're into it. Father in heaven, as we turn our attention now to this not easy chapter, difficult chapter, troubling chapter, uh, a chapter that is necessary but not easy to read. Uh, Lord, I pray that the lessons that we need to learn, we would learn, the insights that we would need to glean, we would see, and Father, then the practical applications that we need to make that you would reveal them to us, and it would be like, yes, that's for me, there's the point of connection, there's the point of application. So be with us now as we turn our attention to chapter 41. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, apostasy at the Jordan. We are well over halfway through. Look at that. Right? It's astonishing how fast this is all going. And we find ourselves right here on the borders of the promised land. Let's go to paragraph one, page 552 of Types and Symbols 453 of the original. And we really, in many ways, pick up on the same, you know, emotional chord that we were on in our last chapter, right? Remember, wasn't it our last chapter where they were buoyant and they were happy and everything was going so well? Or was that the chapter before? Let me just see here. I think it might have been the chapter before. Yeah, the chapter before. So back to chapter 39, it says that they were buoyant and hopeful, right? They were eager. And then, this is quite interesting, in yesterday's chapter... On Balaam, let me just read you the first little bit here, paragraph one in the Balaam chapter. Returning to the Jordan from the conquest of Bashan, the Israelites in preparation for the immediate invasion of Canaan. Very interesting, immediate invasion. Now go to today's chapter, chapter one. With joyful hearts, okay, that's a pickup from two chapters ago, and renewed faith in God, the victorious armies of Israel had returned from Bashan. They had already gained possession of a valuable territory, and they were confident of the immediate conquest of Canaan. So what she's done in, in chapter 41 is she's drawn together really the same opening paragraphs and ideas of the last two chapters, right? With the joyful hearts and the immediate uh, conquest of Canaan. Those are both the ideas that we've already seen. And then she describes, as does Scripture, by the way, today's chapter is based on Numbers 25, and we will actually spend a little bit of time there, Um she, it's described here that they, they, they were camping, the Bible says, in the acacia groves, right? And she says it was beautiful. They were on the western border. I'm reading now, opening paragraph, of the plain rose, uh, on the western border of the plain rose the towers and palaces of Jericho, so embosomed, embosomed, I guess it must be embosomed, in its palm tree groves that it was called the city of palm trees. Then in the next paragraph, she says that they were in this grove of acacia trees and that the area was called the Valley of Acacias. And that's what Scripture says right there. In fact, let me just read that. Numbers 25. You'll want to have your Bible open to Numbers 25 because I will make at least one reference, probably a couple. Uh, let me just read this. Numbers 25, beginning in verse 1. Now Israel remained in acacia grove, right? They remained in this beautiful acacia grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. We'll get to that in just a second. So one of the main things that comes up in this uh, chapter, and, and I, I'm sure you noted it, and what I did was I just made a, a small circle, and it'll be a little difficult for you to see it on YouTube, but you can probably see it here on Instagram. I just made a little circle, and then I wrote ease by it, 
And every time that in this chapter, Ellen White talks about how it was luxurious, it was a place of ease, it was, um, she calls it here, an agreeable retreat. She does this, let's see, how many did I mark? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. By the way, I just want to say this is a really great way to mark, right? Rather than writing out something, if you notice on your first reading through a pattern, come up with a little symbol. I have a bunch of my own little symbols. Um, there's a video where I describe how to mark, which some of you have already seen, but if you haven't yet watched that video, I always put it in the comments of the YouTube videos. But I'll just take a little symbol. It can be an X, it can be an asterisk, it can be a circle, it can be a box. And what I'll do is, is I'll just create like a little table of contents, right? Like a little glossary at the front of that chapter. And then every time I come across whatever that is, like, like another major theme that is, comes up in today's chapter is the idea of guard, barrier, or defense. Guard, barrier, or defense. And so what I do is, rather than just always writing that out, I will create a little symbol. And then every time I come across that, I'll just put it in the margin so that I can quickly just remind myself, oh yeah, that's right, this was a major theme. And that way, when I go revisit this chapter a year from now, a month from now, a week from now, I can quickly, at a glance, remember what were the major themes. This is one of the reasons I love the journals, by the way. The journals are amazing, the types and symbol journals. But I can quickly remember the major themes, and then I can quickly identify where were the spots where those themes were at, rather than having to read the whole chapter all the way back through to try and find. And this is great, especially for like my preaching, if I remember, oh, that's right. In that chapter, there was a line there, there was an idea there. I could just quickly go back and in my own little system, I can normally find the things that I'm looking for very quickly. And so one of the major themes here is that they were at ease. It was, a, it was an agreeable place. It was a happy place. She says their confidence was high. It looks like everything's going swimmingly well, right? They've conquered Og and Sihon and uh, uh, Arad. I mean, it all is going great. They are oblivious to the entire last chapter. That was one of the themes in the last chapter about Balaam is that Israel is encamped down below, going about the business of readying themselves for the ongoing uh, conquering and invasion of Canaan, and then up on the plateau where Balaam is, you know, building his, you know, seven altars three times over, they're oblivious. They're not even aware that this is all happening. And so in a way, the Balaam chapter is kind of a parenthesis, right? Now, when we come back to chapter 41, apostasy at the Jordan, this is really picking up where we left off uh, two chapters ago, which was the conquest of Bashan, which it makes sense why the, the language here is very similar, right? Like they're confident, they're joyful. It's a time of um, uh, relative ease. You know, they're feeling good about their conquests and everything is uh, coming up roses, right? Do you know that saying? It's all coming up roses. They're seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. And it's right at this point when everything seems like it's going great, it's wonderful. This is going to be so easy that their guard is down, key theme, key idea in this chapter, right? The words that are used is defense, barrier, and guard, especially the word guard. Their guard is down, and when their guard is down, uh, then something's going to happen, right? And that's what happens here in this chapter, and we'll get to that in just a second. So I'm on page 553. This is 454 of the original. Um, she describes in the first uh, paragraph there that the area that they were in, the country so rich in natural advantages, had been defiled by the inhabitants. Uh, in the public worship of Baal, the leading deity, 
the most degrading and iniquitous scenes were constantly enacted. And this is kind of a, a theme that we've not really touched on, but it does come up quite a little bit in the Pentateuch, where actually in the entire Old Testament, the idea that the land itself is defiled by sin, the land itself is defiled by idolatry. And so here's this beautiful place. It's the temperatures are right. There's this beautiful acacia grove. Everything's, you know, seemingly going very well, but it's actually a polluted land. It's a defiled land, and it's not defiled because of the what she calls the uh, uh, natural advantages, but because of the behaviors that were taking place here. Not unlike what we've already seen in Sodom, right, and in Gomorrah, where, where the, in fact, just take a look at the very next paragraph. These surroundings exerted a polluting influence. Ah, a polluting influence. And I actually just wrote right in the margin there, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Might want to write that down, 2 Peter 2, 8, Lot. And you might remember that one of the things that, that is said about Lot in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, is that his righteous soul was vexed, right, or annoyed or cursed day by day by the unrighteous deeds of Sodom. So this is another theme that's going to come up in this chapter, is that when we go from piety and righteousness and connection with God, we don't generally just fall away in one fell swoop. She says it takes time, right? And we're going to get there. And that's what happened with Lot. Like he was slowly, incrementally, progressively polluted by the surrounding influences. And she's drawing on that here. I'll read it again. These surroundings exerted a polluting influence upon the Israelites, like Lot. And one of the major themes in this chapter that goes right along with the idea of guarded or barrier or defense is the idea of influence. And I know one of the things on the little bingo card is thermometer or thermostat. And yeah, I'm going to say that today because as I've said to my sons many times before, you have to understand that when you're hanging around a group of peers that are not followers, well, even if they are followers of Jesus, but let's just use this as an example, they're not committed followers of Jesus. They're not going where you're going. They don't believe what you believe. They're not convicted about the things that you're convicted about. Okay, what's happening in those social dynamics and situations? Influence is either flowing primarily from you or to you. It's very rare that there's an equilibrium where it's not going to or from and everybody goes into a social interaction and then they depart that social interaction exactly the same. Now, you are either influencing or being influenced. And what's happening here is that the Israelites are in this great little place and almost unbeknownst to them, because again, their guard is not up, their defenses are not up, their barriers not up, these friendly local women, who by the way were Midianites, well remember that Moses' wife is a Midianite, right? Like Zipporah, she's a Midianite. And Moses spent 40 years in, uh, in the wilderness of Midian. So the guard's down, right? Like there's, these are nice people, they're coming and going. Everything's, hey, it's fine. There's some of the locals. They're sweet. They're friendly. And now another major theme. I don't often do this where I just tell you everything kind of right up front, but I think it'll be helpful if we have a lot of these cards on the table, so to speak. In Numbers 25, one of the most important verses in this whole chapter is the last verse. Okay, so Numbers 25, um, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16, and I'll read all the way down to the end of the chapter. So 16, 17, 18. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes. Very important word, underline that. Now I'm reading New King James Version here. There's even a marginal reference on schemes and it says tricks. 
right? They, they harassed you with their tricks, with their schemes. So one of the, the, the ideas in this chapter is that Satan's attack in this chapter is not a frontal attack, right? It's a flanking maneuver where he comes over here with a scheme, with a trick, something that wasn't seen as particularly dangerous, right? Some friendly local women coming into the camp and getting to know some of the locals and, oh, talking about, you know, maybe a swimming hole or a mountain or whatever. It seems totally innocuous. Seems fine. Seems easy. And so the guard is down, right? The cool breezes blowing through the palm trees, this sense of confidence and expectation of the immediate conquest of Canaan. All right, the picture's painted here, isn't it? Right? Like this is what Ellen White in this chapter is going to drive at again and again, is that we cannot relax our guard. We cannot let our defenses down because, again, there's very rarely in situations where you're dealing with non-believers or people that are not disciples of Jesus, there's very rarely an equilibrium. No, you're either influencing, right? That's a thermostat, or you're being influenced. You're a thermometer. You're either setting the temperature or the temperature is influencing you. And this is what she says here. She says that there was this like polluting influence on the land. She continues in that same paragraph, their life of ease and inaction. Ah, there you go. You've probably heard the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? Ease and inaction produced its demoralizing effects and almost unconsciously to themselves. I thought this was a fascinating insight. Almost unconsciously, unaware. That shows how subtle. And remember, don't forget this. The very first attribute or characteristic that we're told about Satan, Satan, in the Bible is that he is subtle. He is clever, right? Genesis chapter 3, he was more subtle. He was more clever. He's nuanced. And so the language here of almost unconsciously to themselves, they were departing from God. Okay, another major motif here, and I identify one, two, three, four, five, five. Five ex explicit examples where she says that Israel departed from God. They left God. They cast off their fealty to God. Okay? This is a very important idea here, that they're going to leave God, and then, boom, good news, God is not going to leave them. We'll get to that in just a second. Okay, so she says that they were departing from God. Jump down to the next pair, uh, not the next one, but the one after that. At first, there was little interaction, okay? Continuing to set, the, set the, the stage here, set the tone. At first, there was little interaction between the Israelites and their heathen neighbors, but after a time, Midianitish women began to steal into the camp. Remember, guards down, Moses' wife Zipporah is a Midianite, Jethro was a Midianite, Moses, your leader, spent 40 years in Midian. You know, it's like, hey, friendly locals, it's nice to get to meet some of the, right, some of the, some of the local people. Guard is down. Midianitish women began to steal into the camp. Their appearance excited no alarm because the guard is down, right? And so quietly were their plans conducted that the attention of Moses was not called to the matter. Okay, notice the use here, the plans. So quietly were the plans. Well, that's Numbers 25, 18. Their schemes, their tricks. Okay, now watch. She's going to make this point again and again. So quietly were the plans conducted that the attention of Moses was not called to the matter. It was the object of these women in their association with the Hebrews, to seduce, a key word, seduce. It occurs at least four times, maybe five, seduce. So, so they go, and they're just appearing to be friendly, 
and neighborly, but in fact, there's a plan, there's a scheme, there's a trick, there's a catch, there's a barb in the hook, right? To seduce them into the transgression of the law of God, to draw their attention to heathen rites and customs, ah, there's the barb, and lead them into idolatry. These motives were studiously concealed schemes under the garb of friendship. They were not suspected even by the guardians of the people. Okay, there's the first use of the word guard, this time in the noun, guardian, right? But there's the first use, and that word is going to come up, or a synonym for that word is going to come up several times in this chapter. And for me, this was the big takeaway in this chapter, right? So it's fascinating what she does here. She says that the the literal guardians, those that were in charge of sort of looking for a military threat, right? Is there a military threat coming? They've conquered some of the areas around them and defeated Og and Sihon and and Arad and others, but there's the the nervousness that maybe an offensive attack will come to them. And so when they see these women going by, neighborly, friendly women, even the guardians are like, ah, no, they can't hurt us. They can't attack us, right? They don't have swords and spears and spears and the instruments of warfare. Exactly. Exactly. Now she says in the next paragraph that all of this, this scheme, this trick was Balaam's suggestion, and she says in that same paragraph there, it was secretly arranged that Balaam should induce the Israelites to attend this festival. Oh, a local feast, a local festival. We'll we'll take in a little culture. We'll get to understand how the locals do things. It looks harmless and innocuous, but uh, it's all a scheme. I'm turning the page now. I'm on 554 and 455 of the original, And, and now we get right into the thick of it here. Um, we're in the paragraph that begins at Balaam's suggestion from the previous page, but now let's get into this. Great numbers of the people joined him in witnessing the festivities, right? Because Balaam's invited them to go. She actually says that they, they went and they received Balaam's invitation because they regarded him as a prophet of Yahweh, which formerly he was. And as we saw in yesterday's chapter, when he opens his mouth, he still is a prophet, an unwilling, reluctant prophet, but a prophet nonetheless, right? His words were not his own, he uttered some of the most beautiful, you know, poetry. Uh, what did she say? Impassioned and beautiful poetry. And so really kind of funny. But anyway, he makes the invitation. The Israelites guard us down because, again, the Midianites, everything's going to be fine. They seem friendly. Balaam, a prophet of Yahweh, has invited them to go. Everything's going to be great. They ventured upon the forbidden ground and were entangled in the snare of Satan. And I just wrote a single word in my margin here, Eve. Eve right? Because that's exactly what happened with Eve. She ventured on to forbidden ground. She found herself there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and finding herself there, before she knew it, she was entangled in the snare of the enemy. And here again, one of the major motifs of this chapter is that if we go unguardedly, unwisely, and we find ourselves into the the influence and orbit of people that are not going where we're going, doing... Just think about this. Israel is going into the promised land. We are going into the capital P, capital L promised land. And so this doesn't mean that we can't have friends that are not followers of Jesus, that we can't have associates and neighbors that are not followers. That's not what it means. What it means is that we're heading to a place, we have intentionality, our guard is up, our awareness is up, our connection with Jesus is strong, even in times of ease. And you know this used to happen quite a little bit when I was pastoring in Australia, because where I lived for seven years in Australia, it was beautiful, paradisical. I mean, amazing. And I used to have to tell the people 
there in Kingscliff Church, some of the very best people, and to this day, many of my closest friends still attend that church, I would say, you guys, you just have to continue to remind yourself that this is not the world. I know it's your world, and you were raised here, and the, the water is warm, and it's azure blue, and the sky is blue, and the, the cool breezes are blowing, and the rainforest is just behind us, and you know, it's all wonderful, but this is not the world. We're in a war zone. This is enemy-occupied territory. Don't get lulled into thinking that everything's fine because everything's fine here in this little piece of real estate in Australia. It's not fine. We are under attack spiritually and uh, morally. You have to keep your guard up because it didn't feel like, it felt pretty awesome, honestly. It was really hard to continue to remind yourself, oh yeah, that's right, that's right, the great controversy. Oh yeah, we got to snap out of it. This, is, this isn't paradise. This, you feel me? And so when the guard was down, the invitation was made, and then she says, um, they were beguiled with music and dancing. They were allured, which is a synonym for seduced, very important word in this chapter, by the beauty of the heathen vestals, and they cast off their fealty to Jehovah. Okay, do this right now, and you'll see why in a little bit. Take that phrase, cast off there, and put a circle around it, and put an asterisk by it. Put some symbol by cast off, because it's going to be, for me, this is the main good news point, not this point, but one you'll see, crucial. So just make a note of that, because we'll come back to that. Look at it again. Allured by the beauty of the heathen vessels, they cast off their fealty to Jehovah. Make a note, cast off. Cast off. Okay? As they united in mirth and feasting, indulgence in wine, beclouded their senses, and broke down the barriers right? Just like the word guard or defense. Barriers are down. And we've already seen with Nadab and Abihu the warning by God to Moses about wine and intoxicating drink. And I've already spent a bunch of time talking about that. Um, passion held full sway. Passion had full sway. And having defiled their consciences by lewdness, oh, they were persuaded to bow down to idols. They offered sacrifice upon heathen altars and participated in the most degrading rites. Okay, it's right at this point, I'm going to just go back to Numbers 25, and let me just read this in Numbers 25, because it's, it's communicated, you know, with a fair degree of modesty, but then I'm going to read a section out of Flame of Yahweh by Richard Davidson on this. Remember, I've already told you that this is a book you should own, right? I've used this book repeatedly in my study of OT with DA, and I've used it over and over and over again. You need to own this book. Take a screenshot of it. I know it's big, it's thick, it's intimidating, but Flame of Yahweh by Richard Davidson, Sexuality in the Old Testament, because anytime you come across a passage that has some, you know, direct or secondary or tertiary relationship to sex, human sexuality, um, or, or fornication or whatever, um, it's going to be in this book. And there's always, you know, you see the tip of the iceberg here, but then what I love about Dr. Davidson is, is he shows what's going on underneath. And I'm going to read some of that to you in just a second. So let's just read this. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to, to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was, key word here, joined to Baal of Peor, Mount Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Okay, that language there. Israel was joined is the language of sexual union. Okay, so this is a sort of 
modest, ancient Near Eastern way, Jewish way of communicating something not good happened here, something degrading. Let me just read you what Ellen White says. They participated in the most degrading rites. And the way that Moses communicates that is very simply, very modestly. He just says they were joined to Baal of Peor. Now, let me just read to you a few, actually a couple paragraphs here from Flame of Yahweh to provide a context here, and it'll help you to go, oh, okay, all right, I see what's going on here. And it's actually um, a really beautiful picture, right? A really terrible and tragic thing set against the backdrop of a really beautiful picture of God as husband and Israel as his bride. That's what's going on. This is adultery that's going on here, like literal adultery in the micro, where these individual Israelites were committing acts of fornication and idolatry. But on the collective corporate level, this is Israel going, Ellen White says, nationally, collectively, after another god, in this case, Baal of Peor. So I'm going to read some of this here. Um, Forty years later, on the borders of the Promised Land, Israel again fell into sacred sex idolatry. That's what Davidson calls it here, sacred sex. The idea was, in many of the ancient Near Eastern customs, that the worship of the gods took place while you were having sex, right, with temple prostitutes, and that this was an act of worship, right, idolatrous worship, and some pretty gnarly stuff happened there, and We'll let um, Davidson describe some of this. He calls it sacred sex idolatry. I'll read it again. Forty years later, on the borders of the Promised Land, Israel again fell into sacred sex idolatry, this time at Baal of Peor, Numbers 25. That's what we're in. Gordon Wenham points out the striking literary structural parallels in the narratives about the worship of the golden calf at Sinai and the idolatry on the plains of Moab. Ooh, interesting. By means of these structural parallels in the narrative, the theological point is made clear. Listen to this. Here's the theological point. The new generation of Israelites, right, entering into the promised land must learn the same lessons as the generation that came out of Egypt. Okay? So there are significant parallels between the, the orgiistic feast and, and idol worship that happened at Sinai with the golden calf and what's taking place here. Now, a thought that I had, and maybe it's not correct, but maybe God in his mercy allowed Aaron to die before this event because it would have been too much for him. Think about that. That's pretty fascinating, right? Because, because Moses is going to die in you know, just a few short chapters, but God laid Aaron to rest prior to this event because maybe it would have been too traumatic, too much for him to see that this new generation is basically recapitulating, reenacting the very sin that he was the primary protagonist of. That's interesting, isn't it? So God laid him to rest in mercy. So now listen to this. The same test comes around again, and those who failed to learn it the first time are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past and suffer punishment. Divine judgment at Baal of Peor removed the last of the rebellious wilderness generation that God predicted would not enter Canaan. Very interesting. And the more that I think about it, I actually like my suggestion here. I'm not dogmatic about it, but I like the suggestion that God, out of mercy, out of kindness to Aaron, laid him to rest atop Mount Hor so that this would not be seen by him. Wow. 
Okay, I'm going to read some more here. Sexual immorality linked with the pagan fertility cult rituals formed an integral part of the sin at Baal of Peor. As with the worship of the golden calf at Sinai, Numbers 25.1 already hints at the link between sex and cults. Quote, the people, men, began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The verb zena can refer either to illicit sexual immorality in general or to practicing the practicing of prostitution, sex for hire, depending upon the context. Now watch, this is very interesting where he goes with this. But what is striking about Numbers 25.1 is that this is the only place in the Hebrew Bible where the verb zena refers to the sexual activity of men, not women. Very interesting. So this is a word that is often used as prostitution, but he says every place in the Old Testament where this word is used, it's with reference to the sexual activity of women, except here. Here, it's a reference to the sexual activity of men. Now watch the theological point that's drawn from this grammatical anomaly, okay? Um, men are committing harlotry and prostitution. By using a term elsewhere reserved to describe the sexual activity of women, the narrator clearly links the sexual activity to the spiritual harlotry of Israel against Yahweh, a phenomenon of dual harlotry, religious and carnal. Bam. Fascinating idea. You might want to write that down. Dual harlotry. There was carnal harlotry, right? There was carnal fornication. I just realized I've got to got to do this here. Okay. I was starting to get text and I didn't want to have this drop out. So you had the carnal harlotry and then you had the uh, the, the spiritual harlotry, dual harlotry, he calls it, um, that will appear again and again throughout the Old Testament canon. In Numbers 25.1, Zainah refers to apostasy from the covenant expressed in the form of intercourse with the Moabite women. Therefore, Zainah, which everywhere else has a feminine subject, can have Israel as its subject here because Israel plays the female role in relationship to Yahweh. Very interesting. Oh, no sound? No, don't tell me that's true. Um, the sound should come back. It did this before. Okay. Why is it doing that? All right, can you hear me now? Any sound? People still saying no sound, no sound, no sound, no sound. Okay, I got to restart it. End. Discard, discard. Let's try that again. All right, there we go. Give him a second to get back on. All right, we're back live. There we go. Okay, people signing on quick. We'll give them just a second. All right, hello everyone. Sorry about that. I forgot to put my phone on do not disturb and I got a text and apparently if you get any external input, it drops the sound out. That's my fault. Apologies. Okay, so I don't know where I lost you there, but basically the point here is that the word zena, the verb zena here for the sexual immorality described in Numbers 25.1 is in every other place in the Hebrew Bible used for the sexual activity, the prostitution activity of women, right? But here it's used with regards to the men, and Davidson makes this incredible point 
that there is a dual harlotry here, religious and carnal, because Israel occupies the feminine role in their relationship with Yahweh. Yahweh is the, is the groom and Israel is the bride. And so there's, a, there's more than just, you know, casual sex going on here. This is idolatry, right? Now, not that casual, you know, casual sex or fornication outside of the context of marriage is, of course, a sin. It's a violation of the seventh command. But the point is that that's, that's only part of what's going on here, right? What's going on here is this dual harlotry. Okay, I'm just going to read a little bit more. Um, uh, number 25.2 continues to emphasize the linkage between the sexual enticements of the Moabite women and the worship of Baal. Not obvious in most English versions, the pronouns in this verse are all feminine plural. Interesting. Referring back to the Moabite women. These, pl feminine plural, invited the people to the sacrifice of their um, feminine plural gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their feminine plural gods. A picture unfolds of Israel's fall into sin. Sexual liaisons with pagan women, including attendance of the fertility cult festivities, and finally resulting in full participation in the degrading sexual rites of Baal worship. And in other places in Flame of Yahweh, Davidson goes into what some of those degrading sexual rites were. I won't do that here. I will pull the curtain of modesty over this and just say, you know, what Ellen White here says and what Davidson says, the most degrading rites. The mingling of of sex with idolatry is particularly degrading, remember, because, because human sexuality is so beautiful, it's a gift from God, right? God himself is the one that said in Genesis 1 and 2 where everything is good. It was good, 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 it was very good. The only thing in Genesis 1 and 2 was not good. It is not good that humankind should be alone, right? And so the connection, therefore the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two become one, it's beautiful and it is an enactment it's a dramatization. Human sexuality between a man and a woman in the context of marriage is a dramatization and an enactment of the covenantal connection that, that exists within the intertrinitarian dynamic, right? This, in, this connection that there's two but one, but one but two, but there's two but there's one. And then look what happens. Out of the union of the two that become one, another is birthed. And so you have this sacred family. And so, yes, it is true that that from a covenantal perspective, a biblical perspective, sex is sacred. And so for, for Satan to lift out the act of sex and divorce it from the covenantal and, and creational context is degrading. And that's what's happening here. It's not just casual sex. Not that, you know, casual sex outside of marriage is excusable. It's a sin. It's a violation of the seventh command. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here, and he makes this great point, is really a, a recapitulation or a reenactment of what? Of the golden calf incident. Fascinating. Okay, now we're back in, uh, and again, this is, you can see now, under that iceberg, there's a lot more depth there, and I only read you two or three paragraphs out of a whole section on Numbers 25. That's why you need the book, okay? Um, I'm back on page 554, she basically says now, you know, what started kind of small, it spread like poison and a deadly infection throughout the whole camp of Israel. Those who would have conquered their enemies in battle were overcome by the wiles of heathen women, right? And uh, she says that so many began to participate in this feast that she says that the apostasy became national. It became national. Now Moses becomes aware of it, right? It started small, got larger, and in the same way that you might get, you know, a, a sore throat, and at first it's just a little tickle in your throat, you don't think much about it. 
But then in a day, all of a sudden, you got a sore throat and a runny nose and an earache and a fever. That's what's happening here. And now it's you can't ignore it. Moses becomes aware of it. And uh, he is filled with indignation, she says. She then, in the next paragraph, calls it iniquitous practices. And watch this. She says they separated themselves from God. This is now the third time because we've already noted that they cast off their fealty to Jehovah, their faithfulness to Jehovah. So I've already mentioned that five times in this chapter, she expressly says they left Yahweh. They left Yahweh. They left, they departed from him. Now we're going to get to the punchline here in just a little bit of that. Okay, I'm at the top of page 555. All felt that the punishment was just, right? This plague breaks out and thousands begin to die and everybody's like, this is totally fair. This is totally just. We're no better than our fathers. This is the very thing that happened. Remember with the golden calf incident, 3,000 that were defiant in their rebellion were slain by the Levites. And so here this plague breaks out and top of that next uh, page paragraph says, all felt that the punishment was just. And at just this time, when Israel is repenting, she says they're weeping, they're coming before God and realizing that while their guard was down, their defenses were down, they fell into a heinous sin, a sin very much like the sins of their fathers and, and mothers before them at Sinai with the golden calf. At just this time, Zimri comes in with uh, a Midianitish harlot whose name is Cosby, C-O-Z-B-I. She's named in Numbers 25. So Zimri comes with this girl, Cosby, and she actually says that he was, he gloried in his shame, right? He came in defiantly. He came in rebelliously. He was half drunk and he brings this Midianite uh, woman slash prostitute into the camp, glorying in his shame. She's quoting here from Philippians 3.19, right? Who, who Paul talks about those whose glory is their shame. And uh, he, she says he defied, there's our word, defiance. That was our word a few chapters ago. Uh, he flaunted his sin in the sight of the congregation. So here again, this is not a failure. This is not an unconscious sin. This is not a lapse of judgment. This is rebellion. This is defiance. And when it comes in, Aaron's grandson, okay, so Eliezer's son, remember Eliezer's the son of Aaron. So Phinehas, who's the grandson of Aaron, goes into the tent, takes a javelin and shoves it right through the both of them. And at just that moment, the plague is stopped. Now, look, I don't like that story. I mean, in the sense that it, it doesn't bring me joy, particularly, to think about, you know, two uh, people having sexual intercourse and then being run through with a javelin. I'm not like, go get them, woohoo! I don't like that story. I don't like that picture that it brings to my mind. But this was a situation in which a poisonous, terrible plague had overtaken the camp. And here again, Mercy to millions is, the, the, the way that we achieve mercy to millions is by judgment on hundreds or thousands. And so Phinehas goes in and he, he enacts, the reason that Phinehas becomes so emblematic and God rewards him with the covenant of peace and a perpetual priesthood is because Phinehas embodies the jealousy, the covenantal jealousy, the marital jealousy that Yahweh has for his bride Israel. Right now, I'm going to be real here, real talk, man talk. Um, since I've been married to Violetta, and I can say this with total uh, uh, honesty and you know, just tell you straight up, since I've been married to Violetta almost 25 years now, I have never held the hand of another woman. I have never certainly kissed another woman. There has been no 
Violetta is for me. She's my woman. She's my only woman. And by the grace of God, she'll, she'll only be the only one I'm ever with. And I know she has been similarly faithful to me. Now, you know, you would think that occupying, as I do, the role of pastor and minister and leader, that, yeah, well, that would, of course, David. But she actually says that some of the first people to participate in this idolatrous, licentious worship were the leaders. She says it was the, the leaders that were some of the first. We'll get to that in just a second. So, so here's what I'm saying. Violetta has been faithful to me. I have been faithful to Violetta. And I'll be honest, if I learned that Violetta had been unfaithful, it would be devastating. In the same way, if she learned that I was, like if, if I was unfaithful and I she found out, it would be devastating to her just as it would be devastating to me if she was unfaithful. So that's what you should be thinking about here. You should be thinking about the incredible violation, the covenantal violation that takes place when you take that which is sacred and only for one other person, and then you just start wantonly distributing it you know, to people that it's not theirs, doesn't belong to them, right? That's not the way that God designed sexual intimacy to work. And so when Phinehas goes and does what he does there, he's embodying in human form the incredible jealousy, the zeal that God has for his bride and to stop the death that would come. Now, I'm going to show you something here in just a little bit that's incredible. Um, I'm turning the page now. Um, she says that uh, God then says, okay, these Midianite people, they're going to have to suffer for their schemes, for their tricks, for their plans. And so God sends out Phineas with a thousand men and they go and they attack the Midianites and they, they kill not only many of the Midianite men, but also the women, right, who were not just complicit in the scheme, they were active in the scheme. And um, then we come to this paragraph. I'm on 556, 457 of the original. Such was the end of them. Okay, this is, remember earlier I had you underline, circle, cast off. Let me read it again. Um, beguiled with music and dancing and allured by the beautiful or by the beauty heathen vestals, they cast off their fealty to Jehovah, their faithfulness, their fidelity to Jehovah. Now watch this. Such was the end of them that devised mischief, against schemes, against God's people. Says the psalmist, the nations have sunk down in the pits which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. Psalm 9, verse 15. Watch this. For Yahweh will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Underline, to me, this is the punchline of the whole chapter. He will not, not cast off his people, even though very recently his adulterous bride had, because remember, they had a covenant ceremony back at Sinai. His adulterous bride cast off her fealty. Well, not only did they cast off their fealty, they obviously had to cast off their clothes in order to participate in these sacred sex fertility rites. And so they cast off their clothes, and in the casting off of their clothes, they cast off their fealty to, to Jehovah, to Yahweh. But how does God relate? Nowhere in the chapter does it say that God cast them off or God separated himself from them. Five times it says they separated themselves from God, they separated themselves from God, they distanced themselves from God. But when it comes time to sort of talk about God's relationship to them in light of their rebellion, she specifically quotes here from Psalm 94, Yahweh will not cast off his people, bam, nor will he forsake his inheritance. 
but judgment will return to righteousness. When men gather together against the life of the righteous, the Lord has brought on them their own iniquity and will cut them off in their wickedness. And we've already talked about this, how sin is its own punishment. God doesn't have to come externally and add a punishment. Sin is its own punishment. She says that here. Brought on them their own iniquity and cut them off in their own wickedness. So for me, this was one of the great punchlines, maybe the best good news in the whole chapter, is that while Israel was busy playing the harlot and casting off their fealty to Yahweh, Yahweh did not similarly cast them off. Underline it, mark it, and, and make a note of the two. Okay, then she goes on several times. to The, the rest of the chapter is basically application, right? She's, now we've talked about the whole of Numbers 25, and she starts to make a number of points of application, several of which we've already noted. I'll just highlight a few of them here. On the next page, 557 here, she says, um, but when through yielding to temptation they transgress God's law, their defense departed from them. Their guard, their barrier, their defense was down, right? Then she says in that same paragraph that uh, hence all the power and wily arts of Satan are exerted to seduce, right? To, to entice, seduce, allure. These are the words that she's using. And then they, look at the end of that uh, paragraph there, they separate themselves from God. That's the fourth instance. Uh, and remember, remember that the sanctuary, the whole point of the sanctuary was that God wants to dwell with his people. Right? Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. God is not wanting to distance himself from them. What he's dealing with here is that they want to distance themselves from him. They separate. They separate. They separate. They cast him off. He does not cast them off. Big difference. She then, in the next paragraph, talks about the children of Seth and Joseph and Samson and David and Solomon, and we will have time to speak about Joseph. Uh, we've already talked about Joseph, but we will have time to talk about Samson and Solomon and David and their, you know, sexual failures. Um, I'm turning the page here, just kind of moving through. The next page, 558, this is the paragraph. It's kind of a long paragraph that begins, now all things happen to them as examples, quoting from 1 Corinthians 10, about two-thirds of the way down that paragraph. It is not the ignorant and uncultured merely that need to be guarded. Guarded, there's our word, he will prepare his temptations for those in the highest positions in the most holy office. That is to say, pastors and leaders and elders. And, and I wish I could sit here and report to you that in my 20, almost 25 years of ministry, or more than 25 years of ministry, actually, I've never heard of a minister or an elder or a pastor or a president participating in um, sexual immorality and adultery. I wish I could tell you that. Unfortunately, I can't even count on I can't even count on all my fingers and my toes. There's more than that. My fingers and my toes is 20. I know of more than 20 instances where people in leadership positions have cast off their fealty to Yahweh. So this is not something that's reserved, as she says, for the ignorant and the uncultured. Right? Years ago, I don't want to say names, but years ago, I had a person that was, I would say, a very significant influence in my life, even a kind of mentor in some regards. And uh, he turned out to be a total sexual predator. And it was all a grand deception. I just recently learned about another situation where a person that was in a position of significant influence um, and significant influence among young people and celebrated as a leader of young people and a trainer of young people had an indiscretion and not just an indiscretion, but a crime, a crime with a minor. And so 
this is not something that is reserved only for, you know, the worst among us, right? The, the least godly among us. No, she says the leaders were some of the first ones to be seduced, enticed, and allured because they, they needed to be and they were not guarded. There's our word. Um, it's just a lot of great stuff here. Tons of really good application. Let me just make sure that I don't miss out anything. Um, go over to page 559. 559, there's a long paragraph there that actually begins back on 558. It was by associating with idolaters. She here talks about associating with the ungodly. And then I want to read this section down toward the end of that paragraph. The followers of Christ, this is right after she quotes from James 4.4. 4. The followers of Christ are to separate themselves from sinners, choosing their society only when there is opportunity to do them good. This is what we've talked about earlier, the ebb and flow of influence. You're either influencing or being influenced. Only very rarely, almost never, is there a total equilibrium. No, you're either a thermometer or a thermostat, setting the temperature or reflecting the ambient temperature. So she says, only when there is the opportunity to do them good, we cannot be too decided in shunning the company of those who exert an influence to draw us away from God. Okay, friends, the only person that can be a real barometer of this, well, I suppose your close friends could as well, but the best person to be a barometer of this is you, right? If you know that that person or those persons that you're spending time around, when you're around them, you feel that your interest in God, your interest in prayer, your interest in the things of Scripture are, is decreasing, you need to instantly shun, is her word, not to shun them necessarily, but to shun their company. In other words, to, to not spend time with them in a context where you are on the receiving end of influence. Now, if you can create a social situation where you invite them to a youth group or you have them with a bunch of your church members and there's five of you and two of them, well, the influence is very likely going to flow from you to them. But if you're in a situation where there's one or two of you and five or 10 of them, the influence is very, very likely going to be flowing to you, not from you. So she's not saying here, do not under any circumstances spend time with people that are not followers of Jesus. That's not what she's saying. She's saying is you have to gauge how is the influence moving, right? The tide's either going in or coming out, right? I lived in Australia for years and you, you get that sort of stable tide only for just a moment because it's going out, going out, going out. And then for just the briefest of moments, there's an equilibrium and then it's going in, going in, going in. And then for the briefest of moments, there's an equilibrium. That equilibrium is not something you should shoot for. No, you have to honestly assess your relationships, your social connections and your relationships, particularly with those, well, with everybody actually, not just with those that are unbelievers, but with everybody. Am I being drawn closer to God? Am I having my, my love for him deepen, my understanding of his word deepen? Is this a healthy relationship? And if it's not, what does she say here? She says that we should shun the company of those who exert an influence to draw us away from God. While we pray, do not lead us into temptation, we are to shun temptation as far as possible. Yeah, it's totally disingenuous to say, Lord, do not lead me in temptation, and then go spend a bunch of time with people that you know good and well are going to lead you into temptation. Whether it's temptation to, to think in a wrong way, to act in a wrong way, to, to behave in a wrong way, to speak in a wrong way. That's up to you. She continues in the next paragraph. It was when the Israelites were in a condition of outward ease. She's coming full circle now back to how the chapter opened. And security that they were led into sin. They failed to keep God ever before them. They neglected prayer. Neglect is an important word there. They cherished a spirit of self-confidence. Ah, this whole chapter is coming full circle right here. Ease and self-indulgence left 
the citadel of the soul, unguarded. There's her word, unguarded, no defense, no barrier. And then she, in the next paragraph there, the, the rest of that paragraph, she talks about how this doesn't normally happen like in a moment. She says there's a long preparatory process unknown to the world that goes on in the heart before the Christian commits open sin. She says it takes time to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or the satanic. Exactly, which is why we have to guard the avenues of the soul, right? We have to be mindful of what's coming in because it comes in and then like leaven, like yeast, it can, become to, it can begin to saturate all of our thinking, the way we spend our money, the way we think, the way we spend our time. So we do need to be mindful. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the truth here. Even like with something like Instagram, I saw this funny tweet the other day and it said a lot of what passes as fitness on Instagram is just pornography, soft porn, right? It's like fitness. Yeah, right. Try, try looking up fitness on Instagram or better yet, don't. I mean, because I, have, I follow several like um, uh, physical therapy accounts and I follow rock climbing accounts and training accounts, you know, the algorithms are telling um, you know, the Instagram computers are saying, oh, this guy's into fitness. And so on my little screen, I'll get these fitness things. I'm like, fitness? That's, that's pornography masquerading as fitness. And it's trying to, like the Moabite women, right? The Midianitish women trying to sneak into my feed, right? Under the friendly garb of fitness. Yeah, no. No, I don't need to see you like that. I mean, fine, you, can, you do whatever you want. It doesn't have to be in my feed. Okay, so we need to be mindful that it can feel innocuous, it can feel harmful, it can even feel healthy. Oh no, this is about fitness. Look at me and okay, yeah, but some of that fitness stuff is more than fitness. Okay. And by the way, I'm if it's a if it's a true account for fitness and health and mobility, I'm all about that. But as soon as, and I've had to have some conversations with people over the years, I don't I don't want to call out any names, but there were just some really good people that I was following, and then you know, you get a photo and you're like, well, that's, I really didn't want to see you in your underwear. I know that's hard to imagine, but I didn't want to see you in your underwear. And then, then, so I let one pass and then a second time and I'm like, okay, unfollow. I just don't, I'm not about that life, right? The only woman that I want to see in her underwear is my wife, okay? And I'm trying to guard the avenues of my soul because like many of you here, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human being. And I don't trust myself to be in situations where a little yeast could leaven the whole lump. And so we have to guard the avenues of access to our souls. I've had this conversation with my sons over and over and over again. I think it's cute. You know, parents will talk about, well, did you have the conversation? You know, the, the birds and the bees talk. Are you kidding me? There is no conversation singular that you have with your teenage children. You are in a continual state of dialogue with your children about the bombardment, the sensual bombardment that they are experiencing through media, social media, uh, et cetera. It's not, not a conversation, no. It's an ongoing, unending dialogue. My son now, my oldest son now is out of my home. He's 20 years old. He does not live with me anymore. Do you think I still talk to him about boundaries and good decision-making. Of course I do. He's my son. I love him. I care for him. And by the way, he's at an age now where, and he's, he's uh, uh, both of my sons are, are such wonderful, godly, committed people that I would have no problem with them speaking to me similarly. 
fine. Now you're basically, you know, you're raising your future brothers and sisters in Christ with your children. They're not your property. They're the property of God. That's one of the things I said today in the child dedication that I did. These children don't belong to us. They belong to God, and we get the privilege of raising, think about this mind-blowing thought, our future brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So I have no problem with, with my sons now coming back to me and saying, hey, dad, you know, I, what about, and have you, fine. Yeah, yeah, I, I, accountability, yes, more of it, not less of it, right? And so the idea that we have to guard ourselves and in a community, we should be looking out for one another and encouraging one another so that somebody doesn't sneak off with a friendly neighbor, and before you know it, a whole ministry is lost, right? And it, it brings great grief to people to learn that a pastor or a leader or a preacher that they've put a lot of confidence in, all of a sudden, you know, it's turned out, oh, he's been having an affair, she's been having an affair. By the way, it's not just men. It's women too, women pastors too. And women leaders, too. Oh, I've been having an affair for two years. Well, that can be absolutely devastating. In the same way that children, when they go through their whole childhood and then their parents divorce, they're devastated. They're like, was my whole childhood a lie? Like all of that, you, you, you didn't love one another and you just stayed together for the kids? It's really hard for kids to bear that. Similarly, when people have listened to the teaching and preaching of a pastor or a leader or a preacher who then is found out to have been for years you know, basically being a philanderer or an adulterer, well, then they think, well, maybe all of those spirit-filled moments that I had, maybe all of those connections with Jesus through that person's preaching or teaching, maybe it was all a lie. Maybe it was all farcical. And so there's a real responsibility and then a, a you know, uh, a corollary of danger that goes along with being a spiritual leader and not just a pastor, but a father a mother, right? An older brother, an elder, a deacon. So yeah, unguarded, turning the page here. On the next page, she talks about uh, barriers. Um, one quick last thing here, page 560, before we go to the rubric, uh, maybe two quick things. Oh, maybe three. Okay, very quickly. Right in the middle of uh, page 560, 460 of the uh, original, the paragraph begins, keep your heart with all diligence. The word keep here is guard. In fact, I need to make a note of that. that. That's the same idea. Keep, barrier, guard, right? Remember, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to tend and keep it. The word there is guard, to guard it. So keep your heart with all diligence. Look at that paragraph there. Jump down about midway through. He who attempts to build a noble, virtuous character independent of the grace of Christ is building his house upon the shifting sand. Exactly. We need to stay riveted to Jesus, to the grace of Christ. That's the only thing that can guard us from making a shipwreck of our lives and of our families and of our faith. And then I thought it was quite interesting, by the way, she quotes David's prayer, Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And I just put, you'll see this in my notes tomorrow. I wrote, it's interesting that she quotes David in this chapter in both the positive and the negative. She refers earlier to David's sexual sin, right? She says here, here David stumbled. So she quotes David's sexual sin, but then very redemptively and beautifully, she quotes David in Psalm 51.10, redemptively. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The next paragraph, yet 
We have a work to do to resist temptation. Those who will not fall prey to Satan's devices must guard the avenues of the soul. All right, so there we go. That was the chapter. Lots of great ideas in this chapter. And uh, let's go to our rubric briefly. And um, I, I just can't get away from the, the, for me, the great punchline was, even though they cast off their fealty to Yahweh, Yahweh does not cast his people off. He does not leave us, we leave him. And when we return to him, as they did in this chapter with weeping, he is there to receive us, right? This is the same Jesus, remember, that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30 is going to say, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. My arms are open, come to me. I will not cast you off. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. God's invitation to us is to turn and to repent and to come back to him. He will not cast us off. Beautiful. Even in our failures, even in our follies. So let's go to our rubric here. What was the point of this chapter? I put to tell the terrible and tragic story of Israel right on the borders of the promised land, joining herself to Moabite idolatry and sensuality. And notice I purposely used herself because it's the plural feminine pronouns that are used all throughout Numbers 25. Davidson makes that point. Israel here occupying the position of the bride, right? What do we learn about the person here? Well, here we go. God is jealous for his people, his bride, right? He won't cast off his people, though he will judge those who cast off their faith in him. That's true. That's true. Sin is its own punishment, and when we cast off Yahweh, the wages of sin is death, and the way of the transgressor is hard. And God will give us over to the consequences and, and results of the decisions that we make. That's what happened with uh, Zimri and Cosby. Yeah, they made a choice, and then they reaped the consequences of that choice. Okay, the prayer. God, keep me, David Ashrick, from sensual sin and all of the modern manifestations of idolatry. Because in today's day and age, people are not worshiping Baal, right? They're not worshiping Moloch. That's, but, but there's all kinds of modern versions of idolatry, whether it's celebrity worship or the worship of a, of a lifestyle of ease, money. I mean, there are a great many uh, ways to be idolatrous in this day and age. And Lord, protect me from all sensual sin I mean, I'm, I'm happy to report, thank the Lord Jesus, and I just thank him every day. I am so incredibly attracted to my wife. I mean, she's 46 years old, and I tell her all the time, Violetta, you are more beautiful and more attractive to me today than the day I married you, April 4th, 1999. I, I, so happily for me, I'm in a situation where the, the sexual impulse that God has put in human beings can be wonderfully and covenantally and beautifully discharged, right? Like we can, we enjoy one another socially, uh, sexually, um, intellectually, spiritually, amen. And that is frankly the number one way to insulate and guard yourself from sensual sin is to be happily married, to be happily married. And, and I hope as you're tuning in, you are happily married. It doesn't have to be a perfect marriage. In fact, let me let you in on a little Asherick family secret. One of my favorite things about Violetta is that she laughs at my jokes. She laughs at my jokes. 
I make her laugh every day. And this morning, I made her laugh, and I asked her, as I often do, I do the one to 10 thing. It's just like a feature of my personality. I like to sort of measure things and quantify things. And anybody that's a close friend of mine, they know I'm always saying, on a scale of one to 10, how much did you whatever? So this morning I said, hey, Violetta, on a scale of one to 10, how funny am I? And to my astonishment and horror, she said a six or a seven. I, I immediately pushed back on that. I said a six or a seven. Are you, I make you laugh every day, numerous times a day. I'm at least an eight. And so I harassed her and bothered her and made her laugh a few more times. And then she finally, just before we left to go to church, she admitted I was an eight. So these are the, these are the struggles and trials that take place in the asterisk. I'm, I'm being open here. I'm being vulnerable, right? Like that was a real crisis this morning when she said that I was only a six or a seven funny. I mean, that's not going to work. I have to be at least an eight. Okay, maybe I'm not a nine, but I have to be an eight. I, I, I need a B at least. I can't have a C, not in my own marriage. So anyway, that was, a, that was, a, that was not easy for me, and I'm, I'm doing better now. Thank you, Violetta, for upgrading me to an A. Okay, how do we uh, practice this chapter? Well, I just put guard your heart. Guard your heart right there, right? Guard your heart. Gu don't allow anything and everything to come in to your eyes into your ears, and you alone, not you alone, but you in concert with godly friends, but primarily you, are the best barometer of whether or not something is leading you closer or further from your connection with God. That's you, right? You have to determine this movie, this activity, this friendship, this magazine, this book. You, you're the gauge of that. There's not the little, you know, the last thing we want is the, you know, Christian police, the Adventist police, the pastoral police, the elder police to come in and be scrutinizing. No, no, no. I used to tell my children all the time, boys, you're old enough now. You don't need discipline. You need self-discipline. I'm not always going to be around to come in and to administer some punishment or to take away some privilege when you behave like this. You're, you're 10 years old now. You're 11 years old. You're 12. You're in your teens. The days of needing discipline, an external source of discipline, those days are over. You need self-discipline. And that's what we all need. We need self-discipline. We need to be able to evaluate. And a godly spouse and a godly community and a good church will also help to provide that sort of stability and accountability that we need. People can look at us and say, hey, you know, David, I, uh... in fact, I'll tell you a story I heard years ago, years ago, an African proverb, very quickly. So th there was uh, this uh, village, this tribe of people that lived in, in uh, somewhere in Africa. I don't remember the exact place, but there was a tribe of people. And an evangelist had come through, and there was this like revival, and hundreds of people had been baptized. And they lived in these kind of little huts surrounded by kind of a grassy savanna. And these huts would often um, house a, a whole family, right? You could have five or ten people living in a small hut. And so it would be difficult to spend time in your own prayer and in your own reading of Scripture in your little hut. And so um, people would kind of wander off into various parts of the, you know, the wilderness around their little town, their little village, to go off and spend time in prayer and in reading with Jesus. And these people would travel these paths day in and day out, and eventually a little path would form, right? A little path would form, and, you know, 
John goes that way and Mark goes that way and you know, Rebecca goes that way and everybody has their own little path to their little spot. One of my favorite things to do is to have my devotions out in the out of doors, in the wilderness, outside. And uh, in, this, in this little proverb, if somebody had not walked their path for a few days, maybe a week, the grass would start to grow over their path. And then a, a local sister or a local brother who was a part of that you know, revival that took place in the village, they would go and say, you know, brother, I've noticed there's grass on your path. Amen. That's what we need, right? Like we need people around us that'll say, sister, I think there's some grass on your path, right? I've noticed you've not been walking that walk daily because if you're walking it every day and you're really connected, there can't be grass on the path. But if you're taking time off and you're becoming, you know, you're at ease and everything's fine and you're not guarding and being diligent, there can become grass on the path. Brother, I've, I've noticed, is there some grass on your path? We're the ones that should be noticing it most of all. But it's great to have a spouse or a godly community or tribe around us that can say, hey, sister, I think there's some grass on your path. Cool, eh? You like that? Okay, so then finally the promise um, I went back to her quoting David here twice, right? She quotes David as having stumbled into sexual sin with Bathsheba, and then she quotes David in Psalm 51. So I put, the promise here is that David, King David fell into sensual sin, but he repented and returned. So can we. We can repent and return. Even if we've cast off our fealty to Yahweh, God will not cast us off. And so as you might have guessed, my word for this chapter was guard. Guard was my word, and I'm very interested to know. My word was almost seduce, but I, it's, it's negative, and I wanted a positive word. So my word was guard, and I'm very anxious to know what your word was uh, on Instagram Live. Oh, right out of the gate. Maria says guard. Itzanel says guard. Whoa, everybody's saying guard. JJZ2000 guard, MB for him, guarded. Victor Mills guard. Everybody said guard so far. Okay, there we go. Licentiousness, yeah. Uh, entangled, says Jen. Safeguard, oh, that's good. So you add safe on the front there, Allison. I like that. Guard, says Gabby Abby. Guard. Unguarded, yeah, that's basically the same. Guard, guard. Indulgence. Yeah, Sylvia went with zealous. Yeah, you went the Finney Haas route, which I totally get. Uh, unguarded. Indulgence, says Felicia. Very good. Hey, that's my sister-in-law. Love you, girl. Uh, watch. Enchantments, guarded, beholding, yeah, definitely, by beholding we are changed, cast, trying, tempted, guard, separate, yeah, very good, Isnir. That that comes up over and over again. They separated, they separated, they separated, very good words. Subduction, who subduction, wow. Uh, guarding, drawn, watch, separate, allurements, Vigilant, Stefan, that's good. Filter, Chris, filter. Oh, filter, yeah, we have to filter out. Excellent, it's like guard. Oh yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Guard, vigilant. Ooh, Andy says associates. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. Boundaries, yeah, boundaries. She uses like boundaries, defense, in addition to guard. Dino says apostasy. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. All right, well, everybody, that was a great lesson. I hope you enjoyed that. What are we, what are we looking at tomorrow? I didn't even look ahead. 
So today we were apostasy at the Jordan, and tomorrow, is it the law? The law repeated. All right, this is going to be good. Jim says, I love this book and these sessions. So thankful for you, brother. Jim, I'm thankful for you. Love you. You guys are a giant blessing. There's another filter. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. God bless you all. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we just want to pause right now and be mindful of the fact that if we are not on guard, if our defenses are not up, we will be influenced and enticed and allured and seduced in ways that are terrible for us. Father, we have, we admit, we confess, cast you off many times. But Lord, we are thrilled to learn that you have never cast us off and we return to you. The promise is, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Father, it's not difficult for you to return to us because you never left. You were there. And we come to you now. We confess that we have fallen. We have failed. We need help. We need assistance. We need to learn how in this world of modernity and idolatry and sensuality, how to practice the God-given gift of, of sexual intimacy and connection in the way that you have given to us. And so, Father, teach us how to do that. Um, help us to lean into your creational intent, your plan for us. And Father, help us to be on guard against even those little enticements, those things that seem so small and so innocuous and harmless. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you find yourself ensnared. Um, Lord, help us to be mindful, to guard our own hearts, and then to be a part of a, a tribe, a community, a church, with those around us, that we can provide accountability to them and they to us. We love you and thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.